0: Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Hey, Brent. Hey, Alan. <laughs> it's a podcast time. Is it? I oh. pre- we're early. I've pressed all the appropriate buttons, I think. I want to know your name. You were clipping a little fixed you and now we can go I hey how's it you?
1: going <laughs> never mind going For, fine <laughs> it, it's,
0: it's always interesting to <laughs> me and and you know how you get a bias when you have some knowledge about something and you assume that everyone has the at least basic knowledge of what you're talking about yes like I can fake it with statistics you've yes. heard me fake it I have you cannot fake it with audio no there's probably some things like you do. Is it is it jujitsu? Uh, which which martial art do you do? Taekwondo. Taekwondo. Sorry, I know nothing. You can talk. To, I I have zero knowledge. There is no basic knowledge, other than I can sort of pronounce taekwondo.
1: You did that quite well. Thank you very much. Except taekwondo.
0: So I, so, <laughs> so so I I didn't do it well. That's what you're saying.
1: You got. Two out of the three words correct. Welcome
0: to the A-B Testing Podcast, where uh, uh, Alan and Brent, where the A and B and A-B Testing will guide you through whatever, as you can tell, comes to mind. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Except perhaps
1: semantics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So shall we get on with the... What's what's going on? Should we do topics right away and freak people out? Some people just skip through the first 10 minutes of the podcast. Waiting for us to talk about something interesting. Ah, oh, let's like mix it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I took a brief trip to Sweden. I saw. You saw me in Sweden?
1: I saw a video of you in Sweden.
0: Oh, oh, you watched that. Um, I only
1: watched the first half of it because at the same time, we had, uh, I think his name is Yao. Yao. Do a presentation. I don't know. There, there's uh, the the three, at least two of the three. Uh, oh, the three for three podcast you did
0: with Dave. Um, yeah. Lots and, going on in the world of AB yep. testing. It's like a whole corporation. No, it, for sure. Except we, the the we don't make any money.
1: And I'm, uh, I'm sure this surprises you. I am vastly more interested in what the three have to say than what you do.
0: Yes, you should. <laughs> you should and so i went to Ordev, and in sweden flew into copenhagen took the train uh probably one of the best run conferences ever i have been that i've been to this
1: is a devops this is your first devops sort it's of not one. a dev
0: it's a developer conference okay there was a testing track but uh a testing and quality track but there weren't really many testers there but let me get there uh quality the number of speakers the quality of speakers it is a huge conference. Um, imagine, I don't know how many people were there, but my room had 100-ish people uh, in the testing quality track. People like like Jez Humble. You know Jez? No. One of the authors of Accelerate and the author of oh, Videos Delivery. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he, he was also a speaker there, a track speaker. Okay. So on the day of my talk, I showed up early. I go, I'll go to the keynote. I'll check out my room first, make sure I know what it looks like. I'll go to the keynote. I go to the keynote. I'm going. I hadn't looked at the, really looked at the program in advance. So I wonder who they got here and what they're going to talk about. And I don't know if you ever read the book "Everybody Lies." Uh, it's a good no. book on data. It, uh, he. Oh wait, this is the author that did a whole bunch of when Google made their search data public. He. Did a massive amount of research and found really, really high correlation between search for racial, racially derogatory terms and Trump voters. Found out that far more people search for porn than admit, admit it. Anyway, he was the morning keynote speaker.
1: Okay. So that, I have not read it, uh, but that is one of the many books... Uh, that I have purchased and is sitting in a stack that I'm hoping to absorb the knowledge through osmosis. Uh,
0: uh, brief tangent. I also have this problem of buying books that I don't get to read. I've been I was really good for a long time. I'm a little bad right now. I'm about four or five behind, not too bad. Uh, one thing I've started to do to, Rather than buy the book, but to hold a placeholder for it is I do the the Kindle thing where I have them send me the first chapter for free, mm. and that's that's sort of the placeholder. When I'm, re- I'm a, this is I can read this chapter. Maybe by the, maybe by the time I actually get around to reading it, it may not be relevant anymore. So that's my new plan.
1: Oh, so you so you load the first chapter in your Kindle. It's sort of a placeholder, and it ends up being like a to do list. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. Right, and then you go oh, and. If I ever actually read chapter one, yeah, I like the strategy.
0: So that that's what I do. Anyway, Oradev, great conference. Uh, I had a good time with my talk. The recording's available. I watched part of it. I've never really watched uh, my speaking much. But I... Actually, I'm curious what, what people have to say about it because I created a presentation where I would I was planning to adapt it depending on the audience and their experience. So if I were to give a talk on modern testing principles and, and how they've been used to the three, I would go a lot, I would not go much into explaining the principles, but I would dive into uh, all kinds of examples and examine some of the controversy and go on and on and on. Uh, in this room, There were maybe one or two people that had heard of the modern testing principles. So now we have uh, more people to know about them. Uh, There's also maybe 90 plus percent of the audience were developers. Mm. And what I found is the development audience were very, very accepting of modern testing principles. Because they're not that much about testing, or modern, and it, <laughs> you, you didn't get to the end. But one, I'm just going to not give, yet. I'm going to get one little spoiler, because somebody asked, and the inevitable question: Should testers be able to code? And where Brent would say yes, uh, I said it certainly helps, and and then I, I elaborated as I do, and I said something something to the effect of. And they should but if you know how to code, you can use that to write tools to help you do testing. I wouldn't spend that time writing automation. Mm. And then the next person said, I have a question. Did you just say, did you just say testers shouldn't write automation? And my answer was, yes. Next that, question, please. That is correct. <laughs> but I'll elaborate because now I know you want me to. <laughs> but it was it was perfectly set up. Uh, (laughs) I love that question. Anyway, good conference. I ended up, I went to a big chunk of the conference on Friday, the day I presented. And also, I arrived on Wednesday, didn't go to anything. I was there too late. Thursday, I went to a few talks. I ended up working a lot from my hotel room, had a bunch of stuff going on. One other tangent is Netflix does not have Brooklyn Nine-Nine in the U.S., Okay. But every time I go out of the country, it's available on Netflix for me to watch. So I watched a lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine from my room, and then I downloaded a bunch to watch on the plane on the way back. And I can still watch the downloaded ones that I downloaded in Europe, but I can't download anymore while I'm here. So it's like I have to drive to Canada or something Why to get... Why
1: is Brooklyn Nine-Nine blocked in the U.S.? I don't know.
0: Licensing deals? I, I'm not involved contains in... Brooklyn. I, I'm I'm not involved in Amazon's licensing deals. You said Netflix. Netflix, Amazon, whatever—it's whatever. a—it's a fluid download thing. <laughs> also of interest is
1: ooh, Disney Plus. Are you signing up for that?
0: No, I'm not.
1: Neither am I. But and I've heard. I, and and I've, heard a matter really, of
0: time? I've heard it's really. I've heard it's a kind of a hot mess.
1: I, I I think it'll be a matter of time um, before I will feel obligated.
0: I'm not sure I will ever feel obligated for that. So I'll just
1: I'll just ask one question. Uh, yeah, Marvel or DC? Marvel, right. I, I think that closes it eventually.
0: Yeah, but what if I already own all the DVDs?
1: Yeah, even then that doesn't block it five, ten years from now, there'll be no way for you to play your DVDs.
0: You're right. (laughs) And actually, I own digital copies, of most of those. But anyway, one thing was interesting. I want to elaborate on one point before we get back into our topic that was last week's topic that failed, is uh, I mentioned the audience for my talk was mostly developers. And I talked quite a bit with one of the conference coordinators after my talk uh, about how two points to make i have two points to make and then we'll go on to our topic
1: no i actually i think this is an interesting topic right there's there's a lot of movement in this is the first time to my knowledge that you've presented this to primarily a dev audience
0: and one observation there and I, the first observation was is the controversy in the principles is much less so there to an audience of developers. A lot more head nods. In fact, anecdotally, when I've even at testing conferences, people that go, Thanks for giving a name to what I already do, those people are primarily developer type roles anyway, with a little bit of quality background maybe. Remember when we wrote the principles, we thought the one that would cause the biggest uproar is so one where we say, uh, where the testing role may be eliminated. Oh my God, my livelihood, you're ruining the craft. But I feel like we've been able to talk about that one quite well and people have, they they get it. They go, yeah, I can, I can picture that world. What has been more controversial at a lot of talks about this at the conference was principle number five where we say that only the customer is able to evaluate the quality of our product. And we take a lot of everything from. You just expect the customers to do all your testing because you're lazy, or my customer's special. Or whatever flavors of those you want. I still believe that. Now we can maybe it's worth talking about a little bit because we do take not all, not only a lot but continued grief. If people come across this one; it really triggers a lot of people, and they make some arguments, which I I, I kind of see where they're coming from, but they're also, in some cases, getting lost in the semantics of the customer. As a software developer, as a software team, I want to make software that helps uh, help someone do something better. That person I'm helping, or something easier. Remember, customers don't want software. They want their problem solved. Right. I want to help people solve their problems, help people do things they couldn't do before, help people do things more easily than they could do before, help people get their eyes opened up to new things they could didn't even think they knew they could do. Those people are my customers. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for example, I am the team building software for a medical device that. Well, we've had some famous bugs with X-ray machines. I say I'm building a uh, software for automated collection of and, and dosage of an X-ray machine for various uses. Who is my customer?
1: Person that's impacted. Person yeah. being X-rayed. The person using the device. Yeah, so I can
0: have multiple customers. The the doctor, the hospital, may be the one that buys the device from me. But I think I believe my customer is anyone. It's the person whose problem is being solved, which is it can be a multi-layered customer.
1: Well, in that case, right? So, you
0: I, and and correct me if you disagree. I'm just trying to think. No, no, no think. I will. I, I believe it's. Uh, I, yeah, that would be
1: <laughs> <laughs> no concerns there, Alan. So, if you think about it from from a a two-pronged approach, an X-ray. We don't want to just a simple thing. We don't want to over irradiate our, our clients. Yeah,
0: because that would be bad. They would die. Right, but what's and, the reason and, 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 why and, and, they're
1: getting an x-ray? They're having a problem. Right. Okay, purpose they, of an x-ray is diagnostics. It's yes, a tool. Okay? It's a... So
0: with you so far.
1: The, the, the person under study is a key customer here, as well as the person who's using... The tool to do diagnostics is is a customer. As you know, uh, uh, I broke broke a bone in my foot recently. It's still not entirely healed. Uh, it's one of those slow breaks, but it's a lot of work for for the doctor to go what the hell's wrong, particularly if it's a fracture?
0: right, because you there's a be a different treatment for a sprain strain ligament. Uh, versus a bone fracture and the and the and the amount of the fracture, et cetera. Yeah, you need to know what's going on.
1: So if they can produce a higher confidence diagnosis faster, then that that X ray versus say traditional X ray devices is going to be a preferred one.
0: And also, and I want to dive into this a little bit. So there's there's value in we, we all get everyone gets the value in the in the diagnostic software, but also. Uh, the software we create should do no harm that sounds a little bit too much like Google it should not the 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 side effects the the it shouldn't have unintended consequences that detract from the value
1: it shouldn't
0: so who evaluates That's an ethics yes question so right. who evaluates the quality of that
1: of the, con- the the consumers I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a new version. Yeah. What I've discovered. So here's the thing. I'm going to take an aside that's actually relevant, but maybe an aside. I'm not surprised that dev audience was like, wait, why are you sitting up here telling me things I already know? Right. But um, uh, and that's uh, hyperbole. It It is
0: because <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I do weave some stories in. And I want to go actually I'll go back to that in a minute, but go ahead and go on.
1: Uh, a lot of my portion of developing M- MT came from my own personal experiences, like helping moving to unified engineering, right? Uh I was ahead of a dev team and we've recorded this several years ago or where, where I spent a lot of time, I had left tests and I said okay now why would I bring a tester back into the system what value would they add and I realized would it have caused more harm than good having a specialist in right I had a smooth running Kanban system I had a process with dealing with very rapidly errors in production there wasn't a value for me in a test specialist at that point in time and thinking about from um, from a dev perspective i find it interesting when i go and talk to dev i don't have these semantic discussions I don't have to clarify what is quality. I don't have to clarify what is customer. And and I'm trying to, in my head, going, what does that mean? What is that? <laughs> it, it, like, there's, there's definitely a key culture difference between a, a dev specialist community and a test specialist there community. There is.
0: There is. And that just got me thinking of an epiphany that immediately blew out of my head because I was thinking about too many things at once.
1: Yeah, it sucks getting older, doesn't it? It is. And I, <laughs> and I am
0: super old. I'm about to have a birthday. Congrats. I'll be 100 years old.
1: Uh, I don't think that's true.
0: Not quite. I'll, no. still, I'll still be in double digits. No, but time's
1: ticking for me. March, five zero.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember that one. So uh, I was mm. really drunk. So I want to back up and then move on. I kind of want to put a cap on the... Maybe a, a a temporary cap, a trial close on the principle five controversy. I think I truly believe, and I and I still be- people I hear arguments all the time and how we're and against it all the time. I still truly believe that is not only a valid principle and worded correctly, but one of the most important principles. And that's pretty much, I mean, that's stolen from a chapter of Reese's book.
1: I think five and one are the two most important
0: principles. It's you don't get value from your engineering effort until it's in the hands of customers. And even with an X ray machine, I may if I'm building an X ray software, I may give the doctors the soft before it even actually hooks up to the X ray machine to make sure that I may give them the software, a prototype that does doesn't do the X ray, but so they can use the software and it'll have mock ups, for example, of how it may give uh, the feedback to so make sure they understand how to use it that using is intuitive and then the way they use it is the way that I thought they would use it so I can adjust as needed I may do all if I'm developing this x-ray software I may do all that work so I can get that customer feedback before I actually start implementing the the hairy x-ray part
1: yeah absolutely I think like, it'd be a great way to do that a lot of the things
0: and we could go back to uh, how about the, uh, software for an airplane that fails and causes it to crash I would. Put that in a massive amount of simulations with pilots, and well before I put that in the plane. How no, I
1: think that? I think on the on the the quality discussion. Th- there's a couple of thoughts, right? Number one, going back to briefly back to this difference between the test and dev culture, right? I remember when I w- went from test to dev, with a strong passion around quality. I felt oh, oh my God, I am a lot closer to the customer. I can now actually influence quality.
0: Which leads me to, and fully agree, and that leads me to the second big takeaway. And this came up in my conversation with the conference organizer after the talk as well, which tied into my observations at the conference, which have tied into my observations. And, you know, when you... You uh, reflect on years. You go, oh my God, you have a revelation. You go, how was I so stupid to never get to this before? If you've been on the channel, you've heard me talk about this, and I mentioned it to a few people internally, but I am realizing that DevOps, whatever it is, uh, is it a culture? Is it a role? In my Five for Friday last week, I pointed to a podcast that talked about it. And what's interesting in this Coding Blocks podcast, I I would say I put the link in the show notes, but I'll forget. Look up coding blocks and, and find it. They talk about DevOps. It is haunting when they talk about DevOps, how much it sounds like testing and how much they talk about specialists. You really just want someone with that, that specialty. You don't want to have a DevOps team. And going, oh, my God. And... Not just that point, but points over and over and over and over, and I'm realizing that as far as accelerating the delivery of customer value or accelerating the achievement of shippable quality, DevOps has far more to do with that, or an infrastructure team working on accelerating the team in in safe way, in ways that ensure safety and quality, uh, is a far, hands down, far better way to do that than QA.
1: Oh. For sure, And
0: I ran and talk about bringing the quality perspective to a product team. When I was at Microsoft on Teams, my last project there, I was hired as the quality guy, the quality coach. And then I had a manager who was kind of a dick and it kept on yelling at me every time there was a bug. And it's like, Jesus, is this is 1990. Was w- it 1990? <laughs> no, it was, <laughs> 20, it was 2015, 2016. Oh. But I ended up taking over all of the infrastructure team Everything from developer desktop to customer deployment, and that gave me a lot more control. And I got yelled at a lot less. Still, wasn't super happy, but it it worked. So since then, so I, you
1: sacrificed uh, you sacrificed something. I can't put a finger on it for autonomy.
0: Maybe, but let's move on because yeah. that that was that was a good learning experience for me. More learning in retrospect. I, but that was I actually also managed a lot of uh, offshore testers so uh, it wasn't wasn't the best experience so let me move on to my current role at unity and we'll we'll, we'll splash back and forth uh, between
1: hold on I'm not done with the last topic.
0: No 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 we're we're no, no. we're, we're, e- we're easing wanna... in here we're going to go back it's going to it's going to weave. I, but go ahead.
1: That's great. There, there, there's I keep in the back of my head I keep thinking about the experience and this difference. Man I do think there's something important there. And it occurs to me, like, hey, Alan, do you think testers should code? No. Yeah, I'm actually. Yeah, actually I'm going to change. I'm going to change that. And you said Brent will say yes, and I'm going to say. And when he, when Alan said that, he was right. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to I'm going to change it now because I'm actually now wondering if tests can really understand quality. From the outside. Meaning, and, I, and when I think through processes, uh, you and the listeners should be aware that at first I go to the extremes. When I went from test to dev, that shift was very much going from theoretical to actual. Previously, I stood on principle, I stood on theory. I said things like, what? You want the customer to do your testing for you?
0: Yeah, you did. Um, And we we had an episode where we had this whole conversation.
1: (laughs) When I was in a dev role, the accountability, the responsibility was on me to to provide value. So I'm going to say, yeah, test should code. But even further, they should get on a feet they should be coding a feature.
0: See, I don't fully agree. I think there's so I th- I think the the path for a quality specialist to be effective as and and impactful on a software team is not to specialize solely in testing, but the paths they can go into are wide. And I think I have found I don't think we disagree. Uh, But you said feature. And I think this DevOps, this infrastructure role is a very common path for testers.
1: I think what I'm, let me be more precise. Okay. Whatever. So we both agree they should, um, uh, we want specializing generalists, not specialists. Yes. Okay. Uh, What I'm proposing, because there's one commonality that occurs to me for both you and I. We've both coded features. Yes, we have. Right? It doesn't have to be a big one. So this testing specialist that I'm talking about, could they be assigned a small feature and be and own that end-to-end?
0: Just for the experience?
1: Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not against it. I I don't
0: think it's a requirement. I think it's a good idea.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to come up with what is... The key thing is that we have to de-theorize the testing specialist position. Yes. That's it. Theory always breaks apart in the face of reality.
0: Right, there's a lot of thought experiments there. and Yeah, and all right, I'm done now. My, the modern testing course on Ministry of Test, there's a lot of thought experiments there. Like In episode seven, one of the exercises is, what would need to change on your team in order for it, in order for testers not to be needed? Just think through it. Just, just I'm not saying quit. I'm not saying get yourself fired. I'm saying just think about what would need to change. Maybe the list is huge. Maybe it's short. Just think about it. But yeah, there's a lot, a lot of theory there. So now this will still tie into my point from earlier is uh, I've been thinking about this move to DevOps and what people do. And I have, a small I wouldn't call it a QA team so I have one I have two people who on my team former testers okay one of uh, former lead very experienced knows how to code super smart guy uh, he is basically functioning as a test coach for a huge part of the organization. What I've found is that, our developers do pretty much 100%, I'll say 95% of the testing they know how to do. Which is, that's a that's a greater amount of testing than maybe they knew how to do six months ago. But not, probably still not enough. Okay. So having someone there who has that breadth of experience to just think about new ideas, have you thought about this, should we try this? Uh, has been really, really helpful. Also at the same time, he's he's sort of half in a DevOps role and I would consider him part of the DevOps team, but he just happens to do some quality coaching. And in fact, I would view him as longer term as DevOps, But he has the testing expertise, so he's going to end up coaching there. We've talked before about this where just like you have a database expert or a performance expert or a front-end expert or a React expert, having someone with some experience and expertise in testing uh, is a good value-add for the team. But being a total specialist and being a bottleneck is not a good idea. So I had an interesting – we added one more person to my team through acquisition – Uh, Acquired a small company. They had one QA person, but it's interesting how much. It's weird when you have a manager who is not like me at all. uh, But we tend, and we get, we get to our conclusions from different angles, but we agree. Our philosophies are highly aligned, and I'm not sure how or why, because we came from different directions and backgrounds, but. Interesting conversation. Uh, He asked about this person, QA person in the new org. He didn't use these words, but I think at first he was worried they were more of a traditional QA. And I'm going to... I'll paraphrase the whole conversation, but basically I think what he wanted to find out is could this person be a a test coach like the other person on my team? Okay. And the answer is yes. But, But it made me think more about people with test expertise in modern testing growing into test coach roles or test consultant roles. And I realized one thing that a skill that I've been working on, but an interesting thing is there's a level above it where I need to, one area where I want to get better, it as coaching coaches. When I rely on coaching from my team so much, I, that makes me realize that I need to learn how to coach coaches.
1: Right, I have a similar problem, and it's essentially, have I ever shared the definition of empowerment?
0: Please do so, Brent.
1: (laughs) Empowerment is trust that the person that you're empowering will make the same decision you will in your absence.
0: I think I've heard that before.
1: Yeah. I am spending time empowering um, coaches, uh, I'll use the term coaches in this context on my team, Uh, in order to scale, Mm -hmm. right? I need this, I need more guiders (laughs) Um, in order to, uh, in order to take one of the key things that I'm doing right now and have it go viral. All right, right now it's bottlenecking behind me.
0: Oh, bottlenecks are bad. You They quit. are bad. And I want to bring up the Coding Blocks podcast again because uh, you got to listen to it because you'll crack up. They have a long conversation. They're talking about whether DevOps should be a role or a culture, cool. and I and I believe it's a culture, but that you may hire some DevOps folks to help there. And in the middle of that argument, they had a nice long discussion over where they don't want the DevOps team to be the only people that do that stuff. So that stuff bottlenecks on them. Sounds familiar, huh?
1: Good strategy.
0: So it's very much, I mean, DevOps is very much a, uh, there's some expertise around things like Kubernetes and Jenkins and, and CI systems, but you want to empower the teams around you to use those tools and come to you when they need expertise to figure things out. Uh, That whole role is, at Unity at least, is a small team. Imagine, so 200 engineers working on uh, a very profitable business and there are five people working on, six people maybe, working on infrastructure and DevOps and tools. So obviously a lot of it is... Them building the base, and the rest of the engineers absorbing their output. One way to make sure that team isn't a bottleneck is to not overstaff it, because it's small. Because it's because it could be a bottleneck. Make it so that if it were a bottleneck, it would be so painful that they have to do something about it.
1: Uh, right which is
0: kind of like the way I actually I believe that's why uh, basically three people across these 200 plus engineers who have some testing expertise with me being one of them make sure that we are not a bottleneck or when I was a when I was the test guy the quality guy on teams I wasn't a bottleneck because I was if I would have had a team of 10 people we would have been the testing bottleneck
1: no but the other key thing is leadership and in this case So I have seen teams with your same degree of staffing and the same degree of of power that you have go a different way. It is just a flip of a switch, Alan, in your brain that makes this a, a coach model versus a command and control. Right? If you could just as easily take your three people and turn this into a command and control structure.
0: I suppose
1: and with your background be able to articulate it's the right thing for the business you and I both know it wouldn't be I know <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's
0: Do you think it comes it really comes down to that flaw because I inherently believe in autonomy and, and giving people a framework and getting out of their way and and coaching as a leadership style. I would argue that sort of attitude is becoming more and more prevalent among tech leadership.
1: I think it is, and I I think it's because uh, I'll tell you when I changed my mind. Accountability is an important thing. And every person in a leadership role is going to have a different philosophy. But they're all accountable for something. True. Some of us are risk adverse. Some of us are, da- I don't know what the opposite of risk adverse is, but take a damn the torpedoes mentality. When I, when I went and I learned the Kanban model, and I learned that shipping small things faster, continuously integrating Getting that feedback loop so I can respond immediately if we've screwed something up, uh, not only was better in producing quality, uh, but also reduced risk. Right? And
0: true. 1 million percent true.
1: Yeah. And, and so a lot of it comes down to the decision making factor. In, in prior roles, no, we're shipping on this date, right? And so I had to spin up risk mitigation mode to to because again I was accountable for the the risk that we shipped, and the more that that loaded up, the more time I needed to be able to evaluate the risk, and the more it further loaded up, the more I lost confidence of my ability to evaluate the risk. Um, So when I learned, and when you're in that mode, command and control is critical because you need to make sure that somebody somewhere randomly doesn't do something that completely changes that risk equation because you're already having a hard time figuring out what it is, right? But with this other model, I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? You think it's right? Alan, do it. <laughs> Make sure you have a monitor. Make yeah. sure it turns itself off if within just, the first five minutes you realize you're wrong. Just help people
0: stumble <laughs> towards success. Right. So I want to tie this in. We got about 15 minutes left here uh, to our oddly rambling discussion in the last podcast. And it was odd. One of the three said they really, really liked him. We weren't sure why. But because we spent most of the time exploring my role at Unity, the conversation really got thrown for a loop because my official title on paper is uh, Director of Program Management. And there's a skew because Microsoft has an odd view on what program managers are. It's different from the industry. And we spent a lot of time just trying to clarify what that was. So my title on paper, while works, I want to reframe that around the discussion we just had. So... It, was, it wouldn't help helped last week, but I consider myself a, a delivery director or a delivery manager. But then that sounds too much like your release manager. You, you, you accuse me of being, that's not quite it at all. But then Perzy reminded us of, we had this conversation a year ago, almost a year ago when I was thinking about this job. And you said, Alan, it sounds like you're a release train engineer, which is a term from the safe world. And Brent had some right. safe training. And. The definition: the RTE, the Release Train Engineer, facilitates the Agile Release Train, more you know, TM, facilitates processes and execution, escalates impediments, helps manage risk, ensures value delivery, and drives continuous improvement. Or in short, uh, the RTE helps the team deliver and get better. And that's actually doesn't describe my entire job because I have some other uh, coaching aspects in there. But that's largely what I do. I try and I, I try and help the team learn from failures, learn from mistakes, and try to improve, and overall make sure we're getting value to customers. Uh, actually, the way I put it, I think I said this last week, I try, I try and balance velocity and quality. So under that, and, th- and that ties yeah. into what you were just talking about. So does that, and then I want to get into the question we never answered last week, does that framing of my job as release train engineer, since you know that language, does that help you understand what I do, what my responsibilities are?
1: Yeah, and in, in the last cast, uh, the topic was what uh, what KPIs?
0: It wasn't really KPIs. Like as someone with quality experience or as a quality leader in a release train engineer type role, I'm, I'm paraphrasing to fit, fit uh, better context this time, what would be some things you would do or or I can't remember if measure was in there. What would be some things that you would do or measure along those lines?
1: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and, and also thinking about uh, this one witticism. Right? Um, part of our job...
0: What's a witticism?
1: Uh, word I made up.
0: Okay, just checking.
1: When we talk about quality, it occurs to me that a lot of the times... It's getting overloaded. Oh yeah, right. It it it's uh, there's there's three words that I'm. Finding I think one
0: of the definitions of quality is a word that means eleven different things, ten different people.
1: Well, the thing that's really interesting to me is that in the test community, right, we've known that the only the only thing testers can agree on around the definition of of the word test is that it has four letters. Um, other than that. There's no agreement on what is test. True. <laughs> uh, but customer and quality are also ambiguous, apparently. Yeah, uh, and we oh, learned very recently that customer was ambiguous. I, sure. But in your role, right, it's two phases. or two aspects. Build the right product. Build the product right.
0: Cliché and cliché. Right. So that. those... Yeah, I'm involved. I'm involved in helping teams get better at that, but I do also partner quite a bit with uh, both uh, product managers and product marketing to build the right product. So let's go back. Engineers to, don't know how to build the right product. That's one thing they need to be told how to do a lot of the time.
1: Right. And in, in decomposing that, how do you, and, how do you reduce the friction to tell them what to do, and most importantly, so that they self learn it.
0: So, I had a conversation, and I should ease into this from a different direction. While product marketing or product management may have a good idea based on what they've done, talked to customers, research, whatever, to figure out building the right product, we don't know that until only the customer can evaluate that. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. it's
1: all a bunch of hypotheses. So,
0: that's where my role steps in and say, Great, I understand what we're trying to build. How can we? What's our path to get that feedback as soon as possible? I had a conversation yesterday with um, with someone at Unity. We are talking about a project that they said was a failure. That may not have been his words, or may have been his words. And, he
1: expressed disappointment.
0: Yeah, and I said, so I was at a failure, and he talked about things. And, and blah, 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 end of story. The product was a failure because it was canceled or redirected or whatever, and never really solved the customer problem. And I said, let me rephrase that again. So get rid of the, that that face. Uh, this product was a failure. I want products to fail because that's where we get to learn. But this product took three months to fail when I think we I think we could have made it fail in a month. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 what we need to learn from. I want products to fail. I want us to. Reduce the time from product hypothesis to customer impact or customer feedback. And if it takes if it takes three months to figure out they are building the wrong product, that that is something to learn from. Um, it's I, I it's think relative, we could, right? You it, and it, I, it, is, it, it it depends on what you're making, but you want right. to. So here's a product idea, blah. One of the things I help teams discuss, and I think we're off the track here a little bit, but we're not is what is our path to figure out if this is the right product? How are we going to validate this as soon as possible? And what I'm finding is to the less experienced, their idea of the minimum viable product (laughs) is much more expansive than what (laughs) I think the minimum viable product may be. So, that is a. I haven't heard that discussed much the, as far as how to make, how to really identify the MVP, because what I've seen in practice is people call the minimum viable product something that, uh, I saw this on. I've seen this for years and years and years. It's a synonym for what we
1: used to call beta.
0: Yeah, what right? what they call the MVP is far, far, far more than minimum. So one thing, and, read, and one of the three listeners can point that this exists, but one thing I've been working on a lot is helping teams narrow down their definition of minimum. Uh, and I haven't seen a lot of writing or... Uh, I'm just thinking a lot of the talk about this. It's something we, that needs to be explored more, is how do you take what you think is minimum viable product and make it a truly minimum viable product? That's one aspect of my job. From a strategy, that's easy. We we are all over the tangent world here.
1: I I actually don't. To me, this all makes, (laughs) it's all connected. (laughs) I am briefly considering everything you just said and go, okay, is this the next most important? um, So for me, it's easy. A minimum viable product is the smallest thing you can ship where you gain... The greatest amount of knowledge around should you continue to work on this thing? Yes. Okay. Um, I have had this particular conversation with multiple different people. I always bring up the Reese example because I think it's beautiful. They had spent six months and realized that if they had spent one day building an advertising website that said click here to download they didn't even have to implement the download that it could have returned a 404 and they would have learned in one day what took them many man hours and six calendar months to learn yeah
0: yes yes i think it's uh and this has been true for my entire career in software i think there's too much faith from developers that the customers will want the thing they're building. And we need to use customers and data to understand that.
1: Do you know who Steven Blank is? No. Stephen Blank is, was actually the inspiration for Eric Reese. He is a professor at Princeton. He, uh, highly recommended book, uh, four steps to the epiphany. Um,
0: also, I would link it, but I'll forget. Look it up. <laughs>
1: um He shared.
0: You know, I pause there. He shared. Uh if one of the three, if you just want to be an admin on the the podcast website and, and want to go and add <laughs> all these show notes <laughs> for me, happy to have it happen. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw that out there. Anyway, <laughs> he shared. <Yeah. laughs>
1: See um now we're we're uh, A/B test coaches. <laughs> we're realizing that I'm, we're, I'm, we're the bottleneck. I, I'm
0: right, right. I know <laughs> I know my limitations, so I'm looking to delegate.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Now I have to take a moment because I completely lost my train of thought.
0: He shared. Stephen no, I got Blank, that part. Stephen Blank shared inspiration for Reese. Oh,
1: you're talking about developers.
0: Developers, developers, developers.
1: So I happened to happen to, um, happen to uh, go to a place where I saw S- Stephen Blank uh, do a talk, and one of the phenomenons that he talked about was was uh, venture capitalism in Silicon Valley, and that the culture had been changing, and VCs had learned a heuristic which is if this is a company trying to get additional income, if they had a head holy of sales already hired, odds are we're gonna say no. Why? Because it was the head holy of sales, let's say a VP of sales or VP of marketing, um, Their primary job is to go talk to the customer. Now, usually the founder is the inventor. And one of the problems with inventors, and I'm going to say this, a problem exists with developers as well, is the NIH phenomenon we've talked about many times. My idea is awesome, and it is absolutely better than yours. If you have a VP of sales, and they go out and they try to flight this idea, and they realize the customers don't want it, let's say you're the the CEO and you have this "my shit don't stink" uh, uh, mentality, mm-hmm. and I'm the VP of sales, and I say, Alan, no one wants this idea. Right? You have two choices: reevaluate your belief in that. Uh, uh, of your idea or reevaluate your belief on um, whether or not I am a competent VP of sales long oh, far longer story short uh VCs nowadays they want you the founder to do the customer connection not a VP of sales because they have learned you trying to hawk your wares to customers helps to you to get the feedback and understand where you're wrong yes and, and an irrational belief of righteousness kills startups
0: yeah and but you see so much of that not in, in startups as well as within companies i saw that at microsoft 150 million trillion times
1: Right, and this is why. Uh, this is why. I always take the term product requirements nowadays, and I change it to hypotheses, because yes. I, I, I am I am trying to purposely make people realize: doesn't matter how important their belief is, there's still a chance they're wrong. Of course. And the first thing we need to do is evaluate that.
0: As. Uh, And many textbooks talk about this, the idea of falling in love with your ideas. Yeah. And I always fall back to going back to customers don't want software. They want their problem solved. And if you don't understand, if you don't have at least three different solutions to solve the problem, you don't understand the problem well enough. That's from Weinberg. Slight paraphrase. Uh, Focus on that and realize, I mean, here's, it's a hypothesis. You can understand the problem and go, here's my idea for a solution. You get you get some feedback on it, you re, you either you pivot or you persevere.
1: Yeah, I think about right, just before you and I met this morning, I was staring at a report that uh, one of my directs uh, and I have collaborated on. and that whole report, its whole purpose in life, is to shine the light on everything I can think about about why I'm wrong
0: yes that's a good way to look at it and that that helps I think I've brought that up recently it might have been in my in the course it might have been in the talk but I feel like I've talked about that recently
1: Uh, yeah prove the
0: negative hypothesis
1: uh yeah so there's the the you want to you want to aggressively try to prove the negative hypothesis and then hope you never do. Yeah, sure. And, uh, but what I find is... But it's a nice lens to put on that investigation. Every time I actually prove the negative hypothesis is hugely valuable. In In my role, my currency is credibility. Yep. Right. At, when I stand up in front of a crowd and I have my data scientist hat on and I'm saying this is what this is saying, uh, people are going to take action. And... Um, And I don't want to come back next month. Oh, yeah, remember when I told you that? Never mind,
0: (laughs) never mind. Yeah, I learned this other thing.
1: Right? When I'm doing a public presentation, this is an aside. When I'm doing a public presentation in data science mode, it really hurts me because I cannot allow my natural tendency towards hyperbole out. (laughs) That is dangerous.
0: I think we've decomposed enough for discussion. Uh, we will talk about continued topics of whatever comes up in the world as we continue our path towards a. Yeah, we'll see. you. we'll see. Ya oh my God! Soon. <laughs> I, I I thought of something else I wanted to mention earlier, but then I forgot to bring it up. So I, I thought about bringing it up. Then it was at the clock and said, Nah, I'm not going to. So that's all we're going to do today. Okay. I am the master editor of this podcast.
1: <laughs> and I am not.
0: All right. Au revoir. What? No.